Hello and welcome to Starting Over with Shannon. This is a podcast about fresh starts, new chapters and embracing change and challenge to become a better version of ourselves and create a better world around us. I'm your host Shannon Jenkins and every week I'll be bringing you a different starting over story with tips on how to conquer life's difficulties to find greater joy, meaning and purpose. Today on Starting Over with Shannon, we welcome Megan Hunter. Megan is an expert on high conflict disputes, and she is the co-founder and CEO of the High Conflict Institute, which helps people to understand and manage high conflict personalities in their professional and personal lives. Megan developed the concept of the Institute after 13 years in policy, legislation and judicial training with the Arizona Supreme Court and five years with the Dawes County Attorney's Office in Nebraska. She has a background in business and economics and years of experience in the legal arena, which she posits has given her valuable insights into conflict in an array of settings. Megan has also authored or co-authored five books on high conflict issues, and she has given keynote addresses, workshops and seminars on such matters in the US and in seven other countries around the world. Needless to say, she is pretty clued up in this space. I personally came across Megan through her book, Dating Radar, which she co-authored with Bill Eddy, which is all about assisting people to see through the blinding spark of new love and detecting potentially toxic relationships before they come to potentially wreak havoc in your life. I'm sure many of us would agree that choosing a partner to settle down with and potentially have children with is one of the, if not the, most important decisions that we will ever make in our lives. And it absolutely pays dividends to be self-aware, intentional and knowledgeable in this space of what we need and what we would really be better served to avoid. All throughout this conversation, we discuss what are high-conflict personalities, including narcissists, sociopaths, histrionic, borderline, and why we typically wouldn't want to be in a relationship with such a person. What are some of the warning signs of deeper issues that we could detect in earlier stages of dating or of our relationship? How to safely exit such a relationship if you find yourself in one? And P.S. It's typically not something like, get out of my life and never call me again, you piece of shit, you psycho bloody bastard. I should edit that out. (laughs) I think this is pretty crucial listening for anyone dating, thinking of settling down, and maybe even in a relationship that you have some concerns about. And aside from the dating scene, I think having a frame for some personality disorders that extends further than bitch or dickhead may actually serve you in life much more than you think and much more than just your personal life too. So I really hope that you enjoy and get something out of this conversation with Megan today. Hello Megan, thank you so much for joining us here today. Well, thank you for having me. I'm just so happy to be on your podcast. Thank you. So I was going through your book today, Dating Radar, which is 
going to be the bulk of this conversation, essentially how we can avoid choosing the wrong person to date, to marry, to have a child with. I know a lot about this from personal experience, and I wish I had have had your resources, both your book and the other resources you have through your High Conflict Institute, uh, when I was going through all of this, and I didn't. I didn't know. I had a lot of naivety. So I'm really hoping through this conversation that we can help people who are in this dating situation, maybe thinking about committing to somebody, not sure exactly whether they should. Maybe there are some warning signs, for example, of the behaviors that don't seem quite right and how we can investigate that a little bit further so that they can make good choices in their life. Well, I love that. Yes, good. Well, I thought that it might be the case because you also said you hear this comment a lot, like people saying, I wish I had have known this earlier. And one of the frustrations for you and your colleagues is that your resources fall into the hands of people who need it only after they have lived what could be quite a devastating experience. So hopefully we can alleviate a little bit of that with this conversation. I agree wholeheartedly. So before we go into a lot of this about, you know, what we should do when we're dating and what what to look out for in certain behaviors, is there anything that you had in your personal life, any experience that you had that led you to become aware of what you call high conflict personalities? Um, You know, funny enough, you're spot on, right? I did have some dating relationships that were less than ideal. And I... You know, I, without revealing a whole lot of information about them or the relationship, I can tell you that I was very naive and very vulnerable. And some of that naivete came from growing up in quite a religious family that uh, was from a small town. We were in a rural area, and we were the family that kind of took care of everyone that would come to the church. And, you know, we just oh, come out for, for lunch after church, and we, we just enjoyed people. And so I didn't really have a good, I guess, radar for (laughs) sussing out people who might not be so great for me. And then, you know, I had a couple of broken hearts along the way. And I think that makes most of us more vulnerable or more wary. And uh, I think it it battered my self-esteem a bit. So, you know, when I met certain types and the charm was there, <laughs> big red flag, but at the time I saw it as a, a sign that I was with the right person, like the right one, because I, I was being protected, being taken care of, right? You know, mm-hmm. I had, had uh, one guy look me right in the eyes, turn his whole body toward mine, look deep into my eyes and say, I will take care of you forever. I will never let anyone harm you. I will always protect you. And he was a very manly guy. He was a smart guy. And we had a big spark, which, as you probably read in the book, is um, typically a red flag that should be explored, at least. So I just fell hook, line, and sinker for this guy. And within, I don't know, less than 30 days, he was talking marriage. And because of all these things, the combination of them, I was willing to introduce him to my kids. And they thought he was okay. You know, of course, they didn't know. It was going uh, a lot more quickly on my side, right, instead of the kids' side. And after about 30 days of dating and talking marriage and just being completely love-bombed, he dumped me. And he did it with a lie. 
And I was so delusional that I didn't even suspect that there was a lie. I really believed that he needed to go move to the other side of the country, just out of the blue, to attend to a family member. And so I was, you know, kind of fighting like hell to keep the relationship. Like, we can figure this out. We can make this work. And not realizing he was done with me. And there'd been no fight. There'd been no problem. But as I later learned, there was probably a bit of the antisocial personality in there. And he was just kind of moving on, one and done, on to the next victim, so to speak. So we'll come on to this a little bit later when we break down specific personality types. But I do know from personal experience as well a little bit about this antisocial personality character. What was the what was he wanting to get from you? Because there's always that exploitative character there. They want something. Sex. So I, sex. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Just conquer. Yeah. yeah. Dominate sex. Well, you've answered it, really. <laughs> Sorry to be so blunt. <laughs> I love blunt. Let's let's do blunt all the way through. I'm so okay. keen for this. I'm so keen. So, okay, so you had this experience and you were also working at that time in family law. Yes. Were you confronted or confronting characters like that through your work? Yeah, I mean, the the short story of it is that in the world of family law, I knew that family law practitioners, the lawyers, mediators, therapists, all the people involved in what's really quite a large industry, they had this common thread of cases that tied them together that frustrated them, and they were called high-conflict cases, which was, you know, kind of a term started in family court. And I didn't understand, as a business person, I didn't understand why we couldn't properly address these cases that kept coming back to court, coming back to court, where other people would settle out of court. So I sort of went on a mission to find someone who could figure it out. (laughs) And that's when I came across a man named Bill Eddy, who is my co-author on this Dating Radar book, and we are co-founders of the High Conflict Institute. Um, He just understood what was happening behind the scenes in the personalities of folks that kind of fit this high conflict personality profile. Hmm. And I think, I mean, I could be wrong in this, but I think the incidence of high conflict personalities in court is going to be so high because you're going to find characters who actually love that. That's what I had in my personal experience, not me. I thought the conflict was horrible, but my ex-partner realizing he was getting a lot of pleasure out of that fight and the opportunity to dominate yeah, to dominate and to seek authority and get someone to agree. Like they like to get someone in authority to agree with their point of view and that they are they are the winner and you are the loser and to punish you. Like in in a case with an antisocial personality, they they like to destroy. So if they can get the court to help them, they can charm the court enough and confuse the court enough, then you know, they can accomplish that in some cases. Mm. Yeah, I can I can see that. So tell me a little bit more about the High Conflict Institute and what work you do. So after Bill and I met, I just, I knew he had figured this out. <laughs> and so we took a year to set up trainings around the United States in six different cities over the space of a, of a year, just to kind of test it out to see if there would be interest in this work in our training and in our concepts and theories 
It was a lot of work and some cities there were 12 people and some where there were 60 family law professionals who attended. And after a year of that, the following year, we ended up having over 65 speaking invitations and we knew we'd hit something. Like we had some solutions that others didn't. So we started the High Conflict Institute together because I just thought everyone in this field needs to understand truly what they're dealing with. We all know these are high conflict folks. We know what behaviors they present with. We know they like to fight. We know they like to come back to court frequently. We call them um, frequent filers. But we didn't really know why and what to do differently. And that's what Bill had discovered, you know, because he had a, a background in mental health as a social worker, licensed clinical social worker, and then became a family lawyer and started to understand that in these family cases that were high conflict in divorce, that Many of them displayed the same behaviors and characteristics from some of his personality disordered clients in his psychiatric work. So he started to put the pieces together and was really able to help other family law professionals, under, especially lawyers who are not mental health trained, right? And being asked to do a huge job <laughs> in a field without that background, he was able to break it down for them in a way that was very understandable and digestible and they could understand their clients and opposing parties and just understand the, what's going on behind the scenes, both in the personality and in the home, perhaps, or in the exchanges of children and why they blow up and why there's violence and all those things. And he was just able to teach that in a way that they understood very well. Mm. And I know something that you've you joked about in your book was people asking you whether you've got some kind of medium psychic capacity, I don't know, to to be able to detect these these people. But you say, actually, the behavior is just really patterned and predictable. And I think that is something that really shocked me. I remember when I suspected that my partner had a personality disorder, well, as ex-partner, after separation, and only quite a bit after separation, actually, I went and I remember just Googling the crap out of all the terms, just being like, just <laughs> give, give me blogs, give me YouTube videos, and everything fit. And it was just so surprising. I was like, how? I literally feel like you are writing the perfect description of my partner, even to the extent that it would predict behaviors that would come that hadn't at that point, namely legal abuse, which we hadn't currently got into. And I think that's why I just see this conversation and the work that you do is just so crucial because we can you can answer this later actually in terms of prevalence of people with personality disorders, but it's just so much more than we think. And even if you are not in a personal relationship with somebody you are undoubtedly going to come across somebody in some capacity at your workplace, maybe your family, extended friendship network, it, it, your friend's partner and so on. It will happen. So I see this as, as real key learning. Yeah, I agree. It's, it's um, you know, we've trained meh, over half a million people, I suppose, at, at this stage. And I would say 95% of our trainings, people will come to us during a break or afterwards or email us and say, you know, I learned so much. I, I get it now and I know what to do differently in my professional life. But equally, you know, exciting and gratifying was to learn what's been happening at home with my mother-in-law or my, you know, my sister or some family member or even a neighbor 
the light bulbs really go on for people. And it you know can be very, very helpful and relieving, right? Because a lot of people think that they're just, the way we look at conflict is it takes two to tango, right? Right. Well, sure. And we all make mistakes in conflict, but the true high conflict personality tangos a lot. <laughs> These are relationship disorders. And those are, that's my terminology. It's not a, you know, a diagnosis, but these are people who struggle in relationships. So of course, they're going to cause us a lot of distress in our personal lives, in our relationships with them. Hmm. Well, let's go right into what high conflict personality is. And perhaps you could break down a little bit about what different types there are. Sure. So uh, and this is kind of an interesting piece for me because over the years I've kind of refined how I initially talk about high conflict personalities because first of all there can be kind of a a stigma we don't want people to have a stigma about this terminology or to label it or to tell people they're high conflict have a high conflict personality they're a borderline they're a narcissist where those are bad bad ideas <laughs> so we have to get away from that at first but. I spend a lot of time now talking about that they are different. And it's because if you're not looking for this and you don't realize that they really are different, which means you really have to do something different in how you handle the relationship with them, then you're going to get blasted over and over again. So there's this first understanding that the high conflict personality has a different operating system. Let's just put it that way. And they, um, and their operating system, meaning how they relate with other people, that part of their operating system that's been developing their entire lifetime. And it has its own set of rules, right? Just it's programmed a certain way or it's wired a certain way. I'm not a tech expert, but <laughs> this is how I view it. And, you know, so let's say 10 to 20% of people are wired in this high conflict way and the rest of the population are not. So the rest of the population, those 80%, they can have moderate behaviors in relationships. They manage their emotions. They stop themselves before they do something, even when they're angry. They don't slash their partner's tires or public shame them on social media or something. The high conflict personality might do those things. So what is it? We look at the, the four key characteristics of the high conflict personality. Number one. They have all or nothing thinking, right? So you and I like to have flexible thinking. We like to think through solutions and options. They don't. And I, my, the short term is HCPs. So you'll hear me say that a lot. So HCPs have all or nothing thinking. They have unmanaged emotions. So it's just an inability to control their anger, to control sobbing outbursts. We all have emotions, we all cry, but with HCPs, it's unmanaged. And so you just see this repeating itself over and over with, with some. Now, not some of them don't ever cry, <laughs> but they will lie or they will dominate and they just don't stop themselves. And it's, there can be some emotion there. And then the third characteristic is extreme behaviors. And what we mean by this is, you know, 90% of people would never do this thing that they're doing public shaming, lying to the court, abusing the child. Most people never do that. Okay, so that's a third. The fourth characteristic, and this is the most identifying and telling characteristic, is blame. So you listen to a story. Okay, let's envision you're talking to your friend and they say, 
ah, you know, my um, my brother-in-law is so terrible, and you won't believe what he did to me, and, um, you know, and lots of stories, lots of stories. Oh, and then, you know what the neighbor did, too? Ah, and then they start crying, and then, so you start to pick up on the blame, blame, blame. You hear a, just a pattern of that throughout a story, throughout a court case. It's always someone else's fault. I'm always the victim. And then you combine that with the all or nothing thinking, extreme behavior, unmanaged emotions all together. They tell you who they are. And that's the secret. Like that when you're saying, you know, how, how do we see these things? It's like, it's like we have x-ray glasses, but it's really just watching for these patterns of behavior. And we do it through listening to the words they say, our own emotions and their behaviors. Mm-hmm. Well, I know in in my instance, I I guess this comes from being quite an empathic person, but there was a, a significant victim story about that his, his whole life and you know how he had been done over by people. And it at the time, you know, I was twenty one. It got my heartstrings. I felt like I wanted to help and that I could be somebody supportive and loving and kind and all of that. Like not knowing really that there was obviously a lot of manipulation and quite honestly a lot of deceit also. Right in that situation. So what you're describing really here with this all or nothing thinking, unmanaged emotions and so forth, they are these four characteristics which are common amongst uh, all of these kind of cluster B personality disorder, like emotion-based personality disorders. Could you break down a little some specific types? Mm. Yeah, and I'll, I want to say too that not everyone with a cluster B disorder is high conflict. But where you see see that high conflict personality is when they also have blame, right? Okay. Okay. So not all people with narcissistic personality disorder are high conflict, but those who have this pattern of blaming, all or nothing, thinking, unmanaged emotions, extreme behaviors, that's your high conflict personality. And that's their operating system. And we just don't know the rules. So we have to un- we have to ex- first accept, like I was saying a minute ago, you have to understand it. Then you have to accept that they're different. And then you have to accept that there's nothing you can do to change them um, and make them better. But you have to learn how to operate their rules, you know, so that and that's what we kind of specialize in is teaching people how to communicate differently and set limits and things like that to make your life a whole lot better. So the the specific types, there's five types, and four are in the cluster B category, antisocial, borderline, narcissistic, and histrionic personality types that are also blamers. And then one we find in the cluster A group, which are usually people avoiders, but the paranoid personality that's in that cluster A group seems to have this same high conflict pattern of behavior as the cluster Bs. So we we look at all five of them. They're all fear-based personalities. Hmm. I actually really like how you've broken that down in your book in that you have a a kind of a graph and you say the core fear of each of these types. And I feel like that's actually something that's really digestible for people. So if you think for a narcissist, you say that uh, their their fear is inferiority. So then you will see a lot of superior behaviors and so on. The other ones are... Yeah, the like the borderline uh, fear of, of feeling abandoned or being abandoned. <clears throat> the histrionic is a fear of being ignored and uh, paranoid fear of being exploited or betrayed. And the antisocial is, is fearful of being dominated. Mm-hmm. So when we look at 
these fears, that's the operating system I'm talking about. It's a fear-based operating system. So let's talk for a second just about fear and feeling safe, okay? So as we sit and talk today, we both feel pretty safe, right? And that's our default. I think everyone has a default need to feel safe. And so uh, the operating system of you and of I, me, (laughs) is a, a feeling of safety. And we might have our own fears, right? So if you have a fear of heights or spiders or you know, snakes or you know, whatever those those fears are. Mine is driving on black ice. Um, scares me to death. It puts me in a fear state. So my default state is in you know, my operating system gets all triggered, right? When I have that fear, when I when I'm in a car, and now I want to get back to my default safe space because I'm in fear state, anxiety skyrocketing. My heart is beating. Um, I feel. I'm just in fight or flight and I want to survive. So I need to get back in control of things so I can get back to safety. And that might mean I I want out of the car. That would make me feel best and back to safety. If I can't get out of the car, I, I want to be behind the wheel. So I have that, at least that control, right? So those things can kind of get me back to safety. When I get to dry ground again or out of that car, I'm going to feel great. Okay, so that's normal. Now, let's look back at this high-conflict personality. They're in this fear state when they're around people. <laughs> and they've and not all the time when they're around people, but they just kind of, this is their loop. And when their fear gets triggered, so let's say the narcissist that you started with, their fear is feeling inferior. So their default state is to feel superior. When they feel superior, they feel great. They feel safe. As soon as that fear is triggered and they feel inferior, let's say um, someone else got a compliment and they didn't get a compliment themselves or the light's shining on someone else. So to get back to their safe state, because that, that triggers them and they get in that fear state and they get trapped in right brain emotions. And that's where the blame and the all or nothing, the unmanaged emotions and extreme behaviors come in those moments of fear. And they then they just don't stop themselves. So to get back to their safe state and out of anxiety, they will be dismissive. They will cut you down. They will say something nasty to make you look less than them. And this just builds them that back up and puts them back in their, their superior default state. Mm. Okay. And is, is this suggesting that they will only have this like fight or flight response? So you're saying your, your car situation that you get in this fight or flight response. Is that similar to them in terms of that's activated or could this be a, a different baseline for them? Yeah, I think it's, a, it's probably a, a different baseline for sure. And, you know, that, that operating system is just triggered by something differently than we're triggered by, right? The other 80%. So if someone gave you a compliment and I'm also in the 80% group, I'm going to say, oh, that's really great. Uh, That's a great achievement you have. I'm going to congratulate you. But a narcissistic HCP is going to feel inferior. That's going to trigger their inferiority. And they then have to do something to either puff themselves up or diminish, diminish the person who has a compliment. Right. Either. Yeah. Okay. Right. Right. So how does this, let's go to people who are dating, for example, let's consider early warning signs of people that could potentially have um, a conflict, high conflict Mm. personality. 
Yeah, there's quite a few warning signs. And one, I think one of the top ones is is charm. <laughs> and we all present with a little charm at the beginning of a dating relationship because, you know, we're trying to attract someone or, you know, we're being flirtatious or whatever. But if someone is overly charming right at the beginning, that that's a, a pretty big red flag. Pushing too fast is another another red flag. Like if they want to, like the story I shared about my own relationship, uh, you know, within a couple of weeks, talking marriage. Now, there are a lot of relationships who have, you know, I think back to World War II and, you know, soldiers being shipped off to different countries to war and things, and they would meet someone a week before they're shipped out and they get married and they stay married forever. They definitely weren't high conflict <laughs> if they can stay married that long, right? But f- for others, especially in this day and age with Tinder, with all of the dating apps and people hooking up, they're just doing it so fast that they don't stop to consider these these things like the charm. So moving too fast, moving too quickly, um, love bombing, of course. Again, that's just another sign of moving too quickly. We can also listen to the words they're saying. If, if someone's saying words like, you know, uh, winner and loser, they're very all or nothing, right? And they are very much attracted to being a winner and and seeing people in terms of winners and losers. People who are uh, saying words like, you know, I just haven't felt cared for in a relationship like this. I never got the attention from my exes. Um, no one gave me attention. I felt abandoned. I felt disrespected. These are words that are clues to help you build the picture <laughs> that there's probably some deficits here. doesn't mean they're bad people. It just means that they might not be right for a relationship. And mm-hmm. some are going to be dangerous, right? So you have to listen. You have to pay attention. You have your own blind spots and things, but I think those are those are some of the key red flags at the beginning. Yeah, I can see that. I think another couple that you'd mentioned is like this fake compatibility. That really resonated with me. But it is so hard because you're like, well, these also seem like things in some respects that you want in someone that's good. Why is charming necess- being charming necessarily a characteristic that is undesirable? I think a lot of people would like that you know the love bombing i guess you're just indicating that it's more of an extreme of something the things that made me want to be with the person that ended up giving me the highest highs and the lowest lows did all sorts of things to make me feel wonderful and special really attentive thoughtful gifts he remembered you know uh something that i had said a while ago and then bought ordered me a present from that particular place he made a massive effort with my family he was very charming and funny he seemed to share all of the same interests as me i was studying politics and international relations at the time in london and of course he just knew so much about this subject and so on to the and i was like God, this is, I just have clearly met the one. And I think that's part of the problem is, and then it speeds up. And then, as you said before, be blunt, you have sex and there's going to be a whole nice chemical storm going with that. If that aspect is good as well, that I think sometimes it could also be hard to zoom out. Right. And actually see what is happening. Because I think a lot of people do say, and I think your survey for this book indicated something similar, they saw red flags as such, but they ignored them. Or they yep. minimized them or they made an excuse and rationalized some of the behavior away. And actually, in hindsight, you can say, oh, I, I should have seen that. But at the time, I was just so I really wanted to make this work. And I was so excited and feeling in love and lustful that that, yeah, chemical storm overwhelmed 
logic. One hundred percent. It's and who doesn't want to be loved and love bombed and made to feel special? It is a wonderful, wonderful feeling. And it, I, it, this this love with HCPs is really really tricky. And that's why we say take a lot of time because it, it, you may be with the most wonderful person that you and you end up being with them for life, and it can be a wonderful relationship. But on the flip side, it could be your worst nightmare. <laughs> so we say at a minimum, date quite extensively for at least six months before you make any even minor decisions. We see people making major decisions based on that fake compatibility you mentioned and the love bombing and all of that, that, you know, they'll either start having sex right away. They might get pregnant, give a a large financial loan, commingle assets, start a business together, or even get married or move in together, things like that before six months. Um, And honestly, it should be one year. You will definitely see red flags within a year. Probably will see red flags within six months. So we're talking about a lifetime here of abject misery for many people who get involved in these relationships and have kids with them. You know, divorce court is horrible. Co-parenting with someone like this is horrible. You know, in the divorce field, you're in the cleanup crew all the time. I mean, most people getting divorced, it's, it's a normal divorce. But the high-conflict divorces, these are just relationship destroyers. And now you've got a co-parent with this person for the next 18, 20 years, and they're going to do everything they can to sabotage the relationship. They might turn your children against you and against your family. They may get your children away from you. <laughs> and, you know, a reasonable person will want a healthy co-parent in their children's lives. If your co-parent is high conflict, eh, you know, it can be pretty tricky. And it's it's yeah. really devastating. So, yeah. So, Bill and I just wanted to get on the prevention side, which is why we wrote this book. Yeah, I can see that. And going back to what you said earlier, I think you said about 10 to 20 percent of people have got a high conflict personality. I guess it's hard to have statistics on that. Uh, also because these people are not going to be the ones who seek help with some exceptions. True. <laughs> so True. I, I'm sure that that plays into it a little bit. But can we just have a little bit, I don't, maybe you could share a, an anecdote, something you've had in your professional experience that really demonstrates the potential for chaos and real devastation. Because I think if people haven't lived this experience, it's either just completely intangible or outer-worldly and something that could never possibly happen to them. And this is for the confines of the dark Netflix series where somebody's, you know, buried underground, God knows where. And, you know, so I think just a little bit of like, no, really, like what could actually happen? Uh, And bearing in mind the statistics that this is quite prevalent. Right. Yeah. And, you know, I don't know what Netflix would have if it weren't for high conflict people, right? Every, I mean, you truly, you look at, at most television movies um, and and books, frankly, like f- fictional stories, there's usually some high conflict behavior because they do make a great protagonist. And this is what stories are made of. Stories are don't come from boring relationships, right? I mean, I, I think of, of events in my life over the years. And, and this goes back to your original question, like, how did I get into this work? And I remember yeah, I was working at a, a Best Western Hotel in Sturgis, South Dakota, right right after college. We just moved there. And I was working at the front desk, you know, checking in guests and things. 
there was also a restaurant attached and what the uh the cooks and all the, all the restaurant employees would you know clock in and clock out behind my desk so i'd get to know them and there's this one guy named carl super nerdy guy <laughs> he was a, a dishwasher in the kitchen and you know he was a little bit slow and stuff and so i always gave him a little bit more attention and um like to joke around with him and he always joked around so one day I was working an evening shift and he came into the hotel. He wasn't working that night. And he stopped by the front desk and said hi. And he was just, his demeanor was very different. And he asked for change. He wanted change to go play pinball machines in the rec room. So I gave him some change and I just, I kind of tried to do our normal joking and he just didn't really do it. So I was like, I guess he's having a bad day. Um, So the next day I'm back at work in the afternoon and I picked up the phone one that would rang and it was a, a news reporter from the other end of the state and they said would you like to give a comment on the shooting in such and such a town that involved Carl somebody and you know I my heart stopped because first you know it doesn't make sense <laughs> like no he was just here last night and the other side of the state is hours and hours away well it turns out he his wife had left him uh, like a month or two before and taking the kids to live with their parents on the other end of the state. And he drove that night. He'd snapped, basically, drove that night and killed his wife and children the next morning on their way to school. Wow. And, you know, um, was he high conflict before that? I don't know because I didn't even know anything about high conflict and I didn't know him intimately in a relationship. Um, so I don't know, but it's things like that that I, I just, I hate to go so graphic for your listeners, but these are some of the realities. This stuff happens every day. And um, it, it is preventable, entirely preventable. So kind of the typical high conflict relationship that ends up in divorce court or just in complete chaos is I might start out with, oh, well, she looked at my phone all the time. She had to know who I was texting, who I was emailing, who I was, you know, on social media with. She basically stalked me all the time. She violated my privacy. I couldn't do anything. I couldn't go anywhere. I couldn't go on a jog with my brother. I couldn't take my dog for a walk alone. She always had to be with me. Um, and I just thought, you know, she's a little bit vulnerable. And she talked about past abuse from her childhood. And I just wanted to kind of take care of her and protect her. But things got kind of, you know, tough because of the jealousy. Right. So the jealousy is is a big one for some of these folks. For me, it's the easiest red flags of all. If someone's violating your privacy, if they're wanting to see everything you're texting, who are you texting? What are you doing? You know, um, uh, why did she text you? Why did he text you? Why? Whatever. And could this be something that is kept under wraps for a period of time or you might only have a slice of it until it goes full whammy? Um. Yeah, you know, our survey respondents, we had over 600 people respond to that. And several said that they didn't see the changes for quite some time. Some, you know, there are quick changes, like if if there's a pregnancy, like everything was fine until there was a pregnancy. Everything was fine until we got married. You know, the day after the, the, the marriage, there was a huge, huge blow up. Um, and it went from all love to all, you know, maybe not hate, but just dread and terror and maybe violence a majority of people that we come across 
that are now in the throes of a high-conflict divorce or high-conflict co-parenting long-term. And they're, you know, they'll, they'll call and say, look, my life is, is just completely in the toilet. I just feel like I'm in a dark, dark hole and I have no way out. Because when you're dealing with someone who's lying to the court about you, um, making you feel terrible, trying to get you to explode in front of the judge so that you look like the high conflict person, <laughs> those kinds of things, it can, it's just very demoralizing and debilitating. So how do we, you know, um, the people that, that responded to our survey said, you know, look, I was love bombed or I was just lonely and I was vulnerable and this was kind of my only option. And I saw the red flags, but... Um, and, and I didn't give it a lot of time. Um, you know, so it's this whole combination of things. It's not just one thing. And they, they end up in these relationships that are just super devastating. Yeah. I think this would be a good segue into the, the vulnerabilities of people who get into these relationships. My listeners will be, will know that I'm all over this stuff because my development journey since having this really difficult relationship has been that I needed to go within for my own healing and also to to ensure that I did not and will never hopefully find myself in a similar situation. I had to process what made me fall for this person in the first place. And I think a lot of people, you know, you, it that could perhaps feel a little bit like victim blaming. You know, and in many cases, I understand because their behavior is often just so preposterous that you're like, there isn't a complicity in this, but actually there usually is. And I think something that you elaborate on in your book really well is that there are specific types of vulnerabilities that are good for us to be aware of to make sure that we don't fall for some of the traps that are intentionally laid. And some of those I think you have said are there's a, a possible naivety, maybe a belief that there's a, maybe even a soulmate. You know, we believe we have someone there. This relationship is meant to be. I think someone's got to sue Disney, by the way. I don't know if you've, I don't know if yes. you applied to, can we start a class action to sue Disney? Because <laughs> I think they have a lot to answer for. <laughs> All the fantasy, right? <laughs> oh, completely. Um, and perhaps a vulner like a vulnerability in terms of they've been grieving or they're lonely and there's somebody there to to help fill that like hole that they're feeling. Uh, in my case, I know it's a very common one, low self-esteem. Yep. Yep. And a lot of us suffer from that. You know, you're not alone in that. And that's that makes us very vulnerable, very vulnerable to this. Mm. And and there's other naive beliefs, you know, mistaking those warning signs for love, like charm someone sending you, you know, hundreds of, of roses. Now, it might be okay, might be a nice person, but it might not. It's just, these are little warning signs you, you really look for. And as, as we're talking here, I, I start to really dive deep in my brain about, you know, can we really detect these personalities? Or how soon can we do it? Now, I think I can be pretty good at it because I, you know, I teach this, I live this, I breathe this, I think about it all the time. Um, and so if, if, if I'm honest, I think if you, you're skilled up and you, your, your self-esteem is built up. So if you have low self-esteem, you know, go work on that. Absolutely work on that. You want to be in good shape, right? Before you get in the dating game um, so that you can use analytical skills to analyze who you're dating and not be vulnerable to, to all of this. So if if I'm doing this deep dive 
and I say, okay, if I'm a single person and I'm, you know, looking on whatever dating app, um, am I going to look for somebody that's very compatible with me or not? Well, guess what? Anyone can write anything they want on a dating app. You know, I like to ride horses. Oh, I like to ride horses too. And so then it's, triggers this thing in your mind where you say, oh, this is probably a match. Right away, our brain just goes, yeah. And um, they may be honest. That might be a lie. They may be just doing that to, you know, get people to like them or to um, draw people in. Mm. Um, Are they saying things that are, uh, you know, where they really like to be respected? Do they use a lot of blaming language? So you're on that first date right? Second date, third date. Are they tell them, telling victim stories about themselves, how they were kind of wronged in the past, right? Um, or that they felt very abandoned or they've been so mistreated. So you listen for the victim stories. They might be legitimate and be legitimately uh, not high-conflict person, or they may be legitimate and be a high-conflict person. So you're, you take those victim stories, you take the blaming language, you listen for all or nothing, and you ask questions. You put all these things together, and you ask questions about how they have handled a, a past relation conflict in a past relationship, right? Then you go on Google and you Google their name, and you look at their social media, and you see what kind of stuff they put on and what they say about other people. Now, since we're talking high conflict world, I'll just go there. You need to go look on prison websites. And court websites that have uh, public lookup for people that have been arrested. This is a such an easy thing to do. I mean, it takes a little time, but I tell you what, I have found some real zingers out there that were just obvious. There, I mean, they're right there in front of of people, and we just didn't know it. So I say, do as much background checking as you can, and you're going to find a mugshot. Now, a lot of people have mugshots because they got a, you know, a stupid DUI or something in college, but you can tell so much from someone's court record. And I, I think there's organizations, companies who will do some background checks and, and things for you. So if there's any red flag, I'd say get to Googling. Yeah, I've got to say, I could just imagine listeners going like, this is a bit much. I'm sure they, I think they're going to think I'm the nuts one if they find my phone or my email or something. And then all of a sudden I've done some kind of background check on them. Because I think the thing that's so hard about all of this is that you're saying like, be vigilant and use your analytical skills. And I can just imagine so many people going, oh God, that's so unromantic. It is, and but it, you're talking yeah. about your life. Like who, do you want to have kids with this person? right? That's the thing. Is this the person I want my children, my future children to look to as their other parent? Mm. And that's, you know, if you're going too fast and you get sucked in and you start to see some red flags and you will, you will just eventually see some red flags. You have to pay attention to them. You know, the people in our survey ignoring those red flags and they thought, okay, I see some red flags, but I think this person will change over time. They will change because I'm different. I understand them. I can fix them. I, you know, I'm codependent, so I'd be really great for them. Um, others said their family and friends pressured them. And this was a, uh, a couple of big ones. Number one, they believe that love conquers all. Well, guess what? It doesn't with HCPs. One was it was too late to change the plans, meaning the wedding was on Saturday and 
my gut is telling me on Wednesday that I shouldn't marry this person. And then you think you can't, you know, discount it as just cold feet, right? Mm-hmm. When, you know, if you really explore all the signs, you'll you'll figure it out. But, you know, as I'm saying this, I'm thinking it's it's really easy for me to say since I study this all day long, <laughs> every day. It's, it is a lot harder if you're in that in that situation. That's why we wrote the book. Um, but you just have to be really careful. You know, I look at all the dating sites. I look at all the dating books. And I think there should be, after you meet someone, and if you see some red flags, you should probably call me and say, <laughs> or go look at that book, right? And and I'm not even trying to to, you know, pimp the book out. I'm just saying it's, it's the information is there. The stuff is in front of your eyes. You just have to care enough about your own life and about your future children's lives to to do the work, to mm-hmm. really do the best thing for you. And one way I do that is I tell people, if your best friend, like you got a BFF, um, if they were dating this person, what would you say to them? If you saw these red flags that you know you've seen, right, or potential red flags, would you tell your friend you need to leave this relationship? If there's been that one incident where you got thrown against a wall. Remember, high conflict people don't stop themselves. It may be legal punishment. It may be emotional punishment, but it can also be physical punishment. Antisocial people like to destroy people. You combine that with they don't stop themselves, right? Um, some borderline people, you know, they have such wide mood swings when they feel abandoned that they can get either very harmful to themselves or harmful to others. So let's say that somebody is listening, is is dating now, or maybe they've, you know, they've been in a relationship for a while and they're listening to this and they're like, mm. or maybe even for a friend, you know, they're like, oh, don't know some of this is seeming like I've, I'm feeling a bit uneasy. Let's say there might be a bit of this. I don't know. What would you say? What would you advise to do? To read this this information and look at it very very objectively. If it's if it's the person themselves, you know, if you would do this for your friend, why won't you do this for yourself? You deserve it. You deserve to not be in, even if it's not a physically abusive situation, it could be just you're in a a deep, dark hole, right? So you need to learn what you can, learn some, you know, skills either to deal with it safely, or if you need to get out, learn how to exit safely, (laughs) those kind of things. Um, If you're a friend, go ahead. Well, that's what I was going to ask you, actually, in terms of exiting safely, because I think people might be thinking without uh, perhaps a lot of knowledge in this area, they would say, oh, OK, I'm just going to I'm just going to break it off right now. This is unhealthy. I suppose that wouldn't be something you would suggest. Right. So if we take it back to the fear, and that's what I recommend is always go back to the fear. OK, so if you're with someone who has a fear of being abandoned. If you break something off immediately, it's going to trigger that abandonment in half a second. And they are going to be in their reactive brain and 
That's where the mood swings. They, they just, I mean, they're really literally in survival mode. And when we're in survival mode, we do very extreme things. So that's where Carl might have been. Um, you know, he could have, I am not diagnosing him. I don't know, but you know, obviously there was either a fear of abandonment or a fear of being dominated or a fear of being inferior. There was something that just drove that action, right? So you want to be careful with how you exit because their fear could really get triggered. And if you exit uh, with someone with narcissistic high conflict personality, then if you make them feel inferior and you go out with a blast and tell them what a piece of crap they are and you know all those things, it's just going to make it so much worse for you. So you have to talk to their fear as you exit so that you can exit safely. And then you want to make yourself really boring. You want to be boring in the exit and after the exit. You want to not give them stuff to destroy you with on social media, right? You, you One of the bigger things is the pictures, the nude pics and things mm. that, that people use as revenge against others. So I, you know, I, I, I'm a little older than your age group and I, I just still don't understand why young people send nude pics. I just, I don't get it. But <laughs> I would never do it because someone could use that later against you. But anyway, so it, it's you just got to, if you're exiting, make yourself boring. Try not to trigger their fear. And, and I'll give a, a real, our classic number one skill here, which is using an ear statement. And ear stands for empathy, attention, and respect. Someone with who fears abandonment will respond very well to empathy. Okay. And then you've got to have some boundaries with it too. Um, someone with any of the five types, doesn't matter which type, um, will respond well to attention. They like attention in the right way. Narcissists and antisocials respond really well to respect. So you make it about them as you're exiting. You don't make it about you, right? You don't say, you really hurt my feelings. You really have destroyed my trust in human beings. You pathetic piece of blah, 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 right? Because... <laughs> Because you could do that with somebody. Say that to your else. friends, <laughs> right? Say, say that to your friends. Vent, scream, shout, get that all out, and then present your best self. Right, <laughs> you make it self. your best boring self, and make it about them. Make it a win for them, and it's still going to be really hard, right? Somebody with borderline—that's going to be a very, very tough relationship. So you just, you know, there's some ways to protect yourself, and you want to to just be cautious, be careful, and make it about them. Don't trigger their fears. Instead, play to their default system. Make them feel superior on the way out. Make them feel attached to someone else on the way out or that they're, you know, the center of the world and they can dominate someone else. Could you give me a couple of examples of phrases like that just to illustrate mm. this ER concept? Yes. So... Um, as in, in an exit strategy, uh, let me think. So it could be like, you know, we've had, um, you know, we've had some real ups and downs and, and by the way, you want to use a calm tone of voice because there's a part of the brain that is listening to paying attention to that and body language and facial expression. So you want to be aware of all those and just be boring with them. Okay. Don't be dismissive or condescending. And you say, you know, look, we've had some real ups and downs and, you know, I have a lot of respect for you and respect for what you want to do with your future. And I just don't see myself fitting into that. And so I've made a decision and I think it's best that 
that we um, kind of go our separate ways. And I, I believe that you're going to do really well in life. Okay. And would you find that that would generally be accepted? So what happens? Because I could imagine that they, perhaps that might appease in some way, but then they'd be like, no, what are you talking about? I love you. I want to be together. If, if, that, if they're not in that space as well, do you continue in that vein? Do you cut contact? Do you repeat what you said in a different way? How would you advise going there? Yeah, that's you have such good questions. Um, yeah, so it it's it you kind of have to rely on some instinct if you have good gut instinct. I would definitely be talking to a family member who you trust as objective or a friend that's objective and has your best interests in mind um, to get outside advice because you're going to feel like you're in a chaos world and you're probably dreading this. You know how to get out of this. And so, of course, you know, that person's going to say, you're destroying my life. You can't leave me or else they'll really blow up and they, you know, could get violent or they could they could threaten their that they're going to harm themselves or kill themselves. And it's a lot of times uh, a way to get you to stay. So there's a combination of using ear statements and you do those a lot to to get out of a situation um, out of a relationship, but you also have to have boundaries and know what they are. You really need to prep in advance of a breakup. So you say, okay, I know how far I'm willing to go. And if I need to change my phone number, I'll change my phone number, you know, um, go quiet on social media, whatever. But remember what we said about, you know, they just, they don't stop because it's just so driven by this fear that, they don't stop themselves. So if if it's a more mild HCP, it's not going to be as troubling to get out of it. But if you've got someone on the upper range of, of an extreme HCP, you really need outside help. And it may be finding a therapist who understands personality disorders really well to help you exit safely. Most people aren't going to be in that extreme situation, but some are, right? So so use ear where you can. If you're doing this by email or text or some written form of communication, you can use what we call BIF responses or BIF communications. BIF means brief, informative, friendly, and firm, okay? We're going to talk to this person's right brain. The, the reactive brain, right? When they're in that reactive brain, the bridge over to the logical problem-solving part of their brain is to shut down. And so they don't have, they aren't really accessing that problem-solving side. So there's, you know, kind of in this fight or flight, very extreme um, state of mind. And so you give them these ear statements and you use Biff to calm that part of the brain and open up the bridge over to the logic problem-solving side. Um, so an ear statement is what their right brain is craving. That right brain is is craving, if, if it's a narcissistic type, they're craving respect. And so you give them that. You just give it to them because that's going to make them feel better. <laughs> um, and it's going to open up the bridge a little bit over to, to left brain. So again, you're making it about them. If it's someone whose fear uh, is abandonment, you want them to connect with other people so that they don't feel so abandoned by you, right? So you use uh, an ear statement like, you know, I know this is really challenging and it's going to be hard for both of us, but especially for you. And and I want to do everything I can to, you know, 
make sure that you're supported. Now, it's it can be really hard at this point of the relationship. Like, you don't want to be this nice. But um, it's really in your best interest to use ear. And then with Biff, it's keeping something brief. If you're writing the initial breakup letter or email or text, um, or you're just responding to something and you said, okay, I'm just done with this. So you write it and then you biff it. So it means, is it like less than five sentences, like two to five sentences? The way you can cut it down is looking to see if it's informative. That's the second part, right? Meaning, um, is it just sticking to straight factual information? Am I avoiding being defensive? Am I acting out of emotion? Am I admonishing? Am I giving them advice? You just have to keep it just straight factual information. Mm-hmm. Very neutral. Give it a friendly tone. It doesn't have to be over the top friendly, but just a friendly tone. And then you can close it firmly. And, um, you know, like, uh, I really wish you all the best in life. And um, uh, I'm sure you have a wonderful life. Goodbye. <laughs> yes. Okay, ciao. Now give me a margarita. that's what I would be doing so we've spoken a lot about the difficulties that that we can confront in relationships and I kind of want to turn a little bit in the last few minutes to what we would talk about as being positive traits to look at when I look back at my 21 year old self I think I had stuff like I want my my future husband to be tall dark and handsome money educated well-traveled uh I don't know. Some things along those lines. Now my list has changed. Not completely, but I would definitely say now for me, one key aspect is self-awareness, like which is something that that these types of personalities just do not have in themselves, you know, an ability to compromise, uh, accountability or responsibility for their own kind of wrongdoings and not, yeah, not pushing that blame away emotional intelligence. So there's other things now that I'm like, oh, okay, I need I need other things on my list going forward. What would you have on your list or the list I of w- those listening? Right. So um, maybe there should be a law against getting married or having children with people before you're 30 <laughs> or 28. <laughs> um, no, I think that there's, there's uh, like you said, the Disney fantasy and all the wedding shows that you know, just we build up this whole thing around we got to have a wedding. And so that just blinds people to the realities and all that. So um, my list, top of my list would be do the opposite of what you've been doing. Do the opposite of what you feel like doing. So let me give you an example from my life. So I dated a few um, not so amazing people. And I, you know, I just kind of kept getting my heart broken again and again. And that was just, that was my path. That was my journey. And finally, you know, I just had one real jerk, uh, very most definitely a narcissist, um, who kind of broke up with me before our first date. I don't even, it's just kind of hard to explain, but um, he made sure that I knew we weren't going to go on a date. It, it was really, really bizarre. And it just kind of fried me. And I thought that I'm just done. And I really did finally step back. And I said, I'm not just not going to date because I don't, I don't know what I'm doing. I'm doing something really wrong. And and I'd met this guy through my son. Um, my son's best friend was, they were on a lacrosse team together. Um, and I, so I got to know the 
the friend's family and they'd invite me to barbecues. And it turns out the grandmas were in the background and kind of putting this together. They're like, ooh, our Paul is single and so is Megan. <laughs> They're both divorced. We should invite them to the same barbecues. So I met this guy and I'm like, he is just not my type. When he talked to me, it was like word salad. And, you know, I had that list that you had, you were talking about with tall, dark and handsome. And I, he's tall, dark and handsome and all that, but I, he just wasn't my type. And so I had to go against type when he finally asked me on a date. And in that moment, I thought, all right, he's not your type, Megan, but your type hasn't been working for you for about 10 years. So maybe you ought to give it a go. So I said, yes, um, that would be fine. And um, now we're married 15 years. And I swear I should write a book and it would be very short. But the title would be How to Get Your Own Paul. Right. Because he's Paul is your husband. Paul is my husband. And he's the opposite of what I thought I wanted. Right. And it turns out he is the smart guy. He is the stable guy. He is the guy that doesn't explode. He knows how to handle conflict. He knows how to handle relationships. He knows how to handle money. He knows. I mean, <laughs> those are the things, right? When, when, when there are arranged marriages and in some countries where there still are, you've got your family looking out for these things. Is this guy from a stable family? Is he blah, 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 right? Uh, or girl. So um, that's kind of the problem. <laughs> we don't have that for us anymore. So we have to be aware of these things ourselves. and. Um, make that, I guess, doing the opposite of what you've done in the past, or if you're t really young and you haven't had a bad relationship, you know, look for these things we've been talking about, these signs that uh, you're confused, their stories don't match the the reality. And then you kid yourself into believing that, you know, you just don't understand it, right? Or, you know, listen for the victim stories, listen for the blame. The blame is there for high conflict people always. They may be able to hide it for a while, but if you're listening, you'll hear it eventually. Um, uh, you know, are they uh, employed? <laughs> Do you see signs of of drug use? Um, anything like that? Addiction problems? You know, this is not who you want to have kids with. Period. If and and the high conflict going you know deeper into the high conflict, it's look for these fears, right? Look for the words respect, abandon, acknowledge, ignored, attention, dominate, winner, loser. These are all signs. If they don't trust anyone, and it becomes real obvious, you know, if they're too charming in the beginning, there's just a lot of things there that just go for the boring person. Believe me, they're. They end up being wonderful. <laughs> yeah, yeah. Well, is there any last piece of advice or something that you would give to people who are on the dating market right now or in a relationship and haven't made a significant commitment? Any last takeaway? You can always find someone in your life who is reasonable and rational. There are a lot of people who see high conflict signs without even knowing what they are. Find those people in your life and utilize them because it's really hard when we have that spark, right? When we feel that love and we, that makes us think that's the one. They may be the one, but maybe someone else can see a sign that you don't. So, you know, bring other people in on board. And I, I you know, if, if you never read this book, at least talk to friends or family who you know are reasonable and rational. Now, they may miss some high-conflict stuff too, but they may see some things you haven't. So I would definitely 
I would definitely do that. Mm. And I'm sure there's power in numbers in that respect too. You know, maybe it's maybe one person could miss signs, but I think every single person who's had a lot of exposure, I don't know, that would be that would be quite hard to do. Oh. Well, thank you so much for your time, Megan. Um it's it's valuable and you know I really do I would recommend people buying this book it's really easy to understand so credit to you for that because I think sometimes you could, it could, things can be really convoluted and you don't know which is you know you don't know what it's saying exactly you kind of can't remember which is not great when it comes to employing this in your life so I think you had a whole bunch of useful matrices and information easily explained so yes I absolutely would recommend it and this is going to be one of the most important decisions you ever make in your life, right? Right. And I just remembered, I've forgotten, because it's been a few years since we wrote the book, but there's a little test at the end of each uh, chapter um, regarding the personality types. And so you can take that to at least get some kind of clue, mm-hmm. <laughs> right? If, if you're confused, um, those tests will give you some, some more information to explore. Yeah, definitely. And you also have a little test on your website as well in a more briefer format that could... Yeah, give away oh. some signs. And speaking of that, I think probably the number one thing young people should do is read the comments that were left on our dating radar survey from people who've been in these types of relationships with a high conflict person. It will, if you, you'll see the patterns there. And this is just, you know, average people all around the world who've submitted this information and you see the, you know, very common experiences um, throughout. And, you know, there's some differences, but um, you'll see the patterns and you go, okay, what that lady on that podcast was talking about is, is true, right? There, it's, there are patterns and they will tell you who they are and they will absolutely be predictable in the future and it's not going to be a great future. Mm. Yeah, it's, I can vouch for that from personal experience. So get cleaned up. Yes. And there's one more thing I forgot to, to add. Um, we haven't talked about this, but I think it's important for your listeners who may be wondering, you know, if I'm in this relationship already, do I just have to get out because this person has a high conflict personality? You know, it, you know there are some people who are dangerous. But there are some who are more mild. And if you use ear statements quite a lot and you have good boundaries and set limits with them, it can be very helpful. And I've seen, you know, a lot of relationships do okay. Maybe some marriage counseling or with borderline personality, there's a lot of evidence now that dialectical behavior therapy and some other therapies are extraordinarily useful and helpful. And a lot of people with with borderline will go to... um to treatment. If they know to get to the right treatment, they'll go and, and stay in it because they want to be better and get better. The other four personalities, really, they don't seek treatment and there's no evidence of things that really help because they, don't, they just don't go to treatment yeah. um, and they're pretty hardwired. So I would say the answer to that is it depends. And again, talk to reasonable people in your life. Well, thank you so much for your time, Megan. I appreciate it a lot. Uh, thank you for having me on. This was really <laughs> wonderful. And, you know, I um, am grateful for your experience. I'm sure it wasn't easy. Mm. And yeah, to those listening you. who've had this experience, it's it's tough. So, you know, um, props to you for, for doing this work. Thank you. I appreciate that a lot. And thank you to all of our lovely listeners. 
You know, after this conversation, I'm reminded of that old saying that love is blind. And call me a killjoy for spoiling that wondrous chemical cocktail that is lust and love. But I really hope this episode has given you some food for thought that maybe that blindness is better avoided. I'd love it if you share this episode with somebody else and have an awesome week. 